Harvard Divinity School. Art and Religion as Technology, a conversation with Anthony B. Pinn, November 7th, 2022. Uh, good evening, friends. Uh, I'm Terrence Johnson, Professor of African American Religious Studies at Harvard Divinity School. And I'd like to welcome you to this Zoom conversation, an in-person conversation with Dr. Anthony Penn. Uh, for, for the record, we are recording this conversation. So on behalf of HS community, I want to thank you all for coming to, um, to hear our son, Dr. Anthony Penn, who's a, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School. He is currently the Agnes Cullen Arnold Distinguished Professor of Humanities and Professor of Religion at Rice University. And he's also the founding director of the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning. He's also uh, founding chair of the Center for African American Studies at Rice University. As we well know, Dr. Penn has a long um, list of accomplishments, so I'll only note a few here. He's author of more than 35 books, including a novel, as well as The Black Church in the Post-Civil Rights Era, Terror and Triumph, The Nature of Black Religion, and Noise and Spirit, Rap Music's Religious and Spiritual Sensibilities. Tonight, we will discuss his new work, Interplay of Things, Religion, Art, and Presence Together. So on behalf of the Divinity School, let us give Dr. Penn a warm welcome to Harvard Divinity School. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming to hang out with me. There are a couple of things I'd like to say uh, uh, to start out. First, Dr. Johnson, thank you for this. Uh, Dean Hempton, thank you for the very generous invitation to uh, serve as a visiting scholar. I have a long and complicated relationship with Harvard Divinity School, but it is a delight to be able to hang out in this new place, new in a variety of, of ways. So thank you so much. First person I ever met who had any relationship with Harvard Divinity School was Reverend Fred Lucas, who was my father in ministry during an earlier phase of my life. The second person I met was Dr. Preston Williams. We drove from New York to Cambridge as I was applying. And the idea was just to meet this man. I read some of his work and had heard conversations about him because I was at Columbia, but I would hang out at Union. It was a more interesting place. And his name came up and I got to sit in his office. And he was just matter of fact about this. He said, well, it looks like you're gonna get, it looks like you're gonna get in, so the conversation makes sense. Right? And I just thought, this is fantastic. But you know, the thing you really have to understand about Dr. Williams is the way he looked out for students without the demand for recognition. I was able to buy groceries and get books because Preston Williams looked out for me. So I will eternally be grateful for all you did uh, to not only get me through, but a whole lot of fo folks who look like me. And to my friends and family in the room, what's up? It's good to see you as always. Uh, Dr. Johnson asked me to just make some opening remarks concerning the book, but I thought what I would do is provide a bit of context for it. So from early on in my work, it was somewhat apparent to me that the study of black religion was under-theorized, that we did not give sufficient attention to issues of theory and method. There was the brilliant 
Dr. Charles Long. But it seems to me what held sway was the conversation initiated by folks like James Cone, who argued, look, we don't have time for this. Black folks are dying, and you want to talk about issues of theory and method, right? That we under-theorize this. And, and for me, this was telling because I was, I was a humanist trying to find space for humanism within the study of black religion. And as my grandmother would say, that was more than a notion. Right, trying to find space for it, trying to articulate a sense of what this constitutes within the context of black life and why it makes sense to talk about humanism in relationship to this larger arena of black religious studies. Theory mattered. And, and so I was trying to wrestle with this as best I could as an assistant professor trying to gain some ground at McAllister College. And my first effort was varieties of African-American religious experience that for me has been traditionally misread. That what has occupied the attention of both folks who like it and folks who hate it is the conversation concerning the four traditions. And for me, this conversation concerning the four traditions was an opportunity to raise questions concerning issues of theory and method. If you cannot restrict the nature and meaning of black religion to the black church, what is it? And how do you study it, right? So if you think about theory as how you wrap your mind around this idea and method, how you handle it, how do you think black religion beyond the confines of the black church? And how do you handle black religion beyond the confines of the black church? Those first four chapters are an opportunity to wrestle with those questions. I thought I was following the lead of folks like Charles Long who argue theory follows data. So I'm, I'm giving you a sense of these traditions, but for me, the most important work of final two chapters in that book in which I try to outline a black comparative theology. The name of the book is not what I intended, but it's what the press insisted upon, right? And I'm happy to get published, right? I'm, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that is not a fight I need to have. You want to call it that for whatever reason, cool, but it, it misses the point. What I wanted was toward a black comparative theology because this is what I was trying to do. And so I was wrestling with method, but the issue of theory I hadn't adequately turned attention to. So I was figuring out a way based upon my training to handle this thing called black religion, but I needed to give more and more consistent attention to how you go about naming it. And, and this is what Terra and Triumph was meant to do. Again, not my title, but the content of that book was an effort to, to wrestle with this. How do you theorize this? And so I, again, wanted to move beyond any assumption that to name the black church is to name black religion. But I also wanted to push against any assumption that black religion really revolved around doctrine, creeds, institutional forms, and priesthoods, that it was something, there was something underneath this. And so my way of naming that was the quest for complex subjectivity. This is what religion is. It is the quest for complex subjectivity. It is not the capturing of that subjectivity. It's the yearning for, the desire for more life meaning, a desire that is never fulfilled. I was beginning to seriously read Camus, and so this was compelling for me that this isn't a completed project. It's this effort to secure this meaning. And, and, and so my argument was that what we have been preoccupied with in the study of black religion is the, is the residue of this yearning, 
that these doctrines, creeds, these institutions tell us something, but they don't cut to the core, that there's, there's something undergirding them, there's something that motivates them that is really religion. And I could fit humanism in this because this quest for complex subjectivity doesn't require God or God. You can have them, but they aren't required. And this worked for me for quite some time. Uh, and my effort then was to kind of build this out. So I was in conversation with a couple of presses and my idea was I was going to take this idea of relational centralism and, and terror and triumph and build that out in conversation with popular culture. And I started working on that, but I couldn't get very far. I just, the chapters weren't flowing and I've never really experienced writer's block, but I, I, I couldn't get it done. It just was not coming together. Conversations with colleagues, friends, family, and students forced me to rethink some of this. And what became evident to me is what you get in Terror and Triumph is the ethical response to disregard, to anti-black racism as a death-dealing enterprise, but that I hadn't really captured the theory of religion. I had provided the ethical impulse. I had misnamed this. And so interplay of things changed. It was the prequel. I had to give a sense of the theory of religion that was assumed in terror and triumph. As I thought this through, what became clear to me was that my understanding of, of religion, my, my theorization of religion, really involved an understanding of it as a mode of interpretation, a hermeneutic. And I borrowed from Foucault that it is a technology. It's a device we use for interrogating and exploring human experience. And the vocabulary and grammar we have attached to it helps us to name certain dimensions, but these are not the only dimensions found within human experience. It is simply a hermeneutic, a tool, a method for interrogating human experience. And what this method highlights is a kind of openness, the porous nature of things. And, and so in this book, I, I try to use the arts, literature, the visual arts, performance arts as a way of unpacking and, and presenting the kind of openness that this hermeneutic presents. But also I turn to Du Bois and Nella Larson and Richard Wright and Camus to get a sense of how social mechanisms seek to close off, to encourage us to privilege wholeness, fullness, to see as right boundaries. So that's what the book tries to do. That's what it attempts to explore. That's how it relates to the earlier projects. No, great, uh, Dr. Penn, this is a really great kind of opening. And I'm wondering, can you say more before we dive into the, the actual text, your starting point as you were trying to sort of problematize religion. I'm wondering, was the issue that you were starting with black, the black church and then trying to decipher from this historical creation what religion is? In other words, had you turned to say, Du Bois returned to Zora Neale Hurston or, or Long in terms of the concept of Africa, would that have taken you down a different route? Because it seems as if starting with sort of the nitty gritty of black suffering and trying to um, logistically account for um, black emancipation right through, through laws and legislation and through religion, then necessarily forced you into a project that was always prone to be very ethical 
and practical in that sense, which then would foreclose opportunity to actually theorize about religion. I, I don't know that that's the case. It didn't have to be the black church. I mean, we could take the nation of Islam and the five percenters, and my argument is it is an intellectual lie to assume that this is the only manifestation, that this captures everything we mean by black religion. I start with the black church because it dominated the conversation, and it seemed to me that if I could detangle the black church from this basic impulse of black religion, the rest is easier. Okay. But we're still, I think, leaving out some of the African-derived traditions, right, that Rabbit and others point out. If you focus on sort of the black church as this institution, right? Well, but then you, but if you look at varieties of African-American religious experience, it's not restricted to the black church, right? That I wrestle with these traditions. My argument in that book is we, we need a kind of common ground. What allows us to interrogate these traditions without reducing any of them to the Christian church, right? With, how do we develop a vocabulary and grammar for exploring these traditions that doesn't restrict us to the sensibilities of any one tradition? And so my argument was if you look across these traditions, right? If you look across African-derived traditions, if you look across, if you look across all of them, it seemed to me that all of them, regardless of differences in ritual, regardless of differences in thought, all of them wrestled with the existential concern of suffering. And so for me as a theologian, this was a way into all of them, right? That didn't require me to privilege any of them. Okay. Um, but it wasn't, no, I, I don't think I've ever restricted myself to the, to the church. Okay, no, that's, that's a fair point. And so I wanna move now into this whole idea of religion in terms of as, as a way that the very process uh, of interpretation is what is religious, and so tell us more about that in terms of how that now is sort of framing, say, your approach, particularly to art, and we'll, we'll go to a few images in a, in a moment to kind of think through this. I, I think for me, one of the things that surfaced in this turn to religion as a hermeneutic and strictly as a hermeneutic is what's lost through this move? Why the resistance to this? What is it we have what is it we have associated with that category of religion, right? What have we associated with black religion that makes this move traumatic? So I'm, I, I don't have a full answer to that, but it seems to me a, a, a useful question. What have we invested in this that makes a shift away from stuff as a way to, uh, to understand religion? What makes that difficult? Right, what's lost? On some level, my concern here was a, a way to figure out humanism within the context of the study of black religion. Right, because much of the early resistance I got to this was, black people don't do this. Right, this is this is not what we do. The number of AAR presentations I gave, I gave early on when I still had hair, the response was, man, this isn't what black people do. Right? Black people are not this. And it came from a variety of locations, right? So Preston Williams argued, I'm not Preston Williams, Peter Paris, my bad. Peter Paris <laughs> argued this with me, that this is an imposition. This is not how black people understand the world, that black people are theists. The rest is an imposition. It is not us. I, I, that is just, I, I, looking through African-American experience and looking at personalities, this was just not the case, that this is embedded. Sure, you have the spirituals, but you have the blues, and don't think 1920s race records. 
right? The blues are as old as the spirituals, and they push against the theological assumptions that are made within the spirituals. Now, were they humanists? It wouldn't be fair for me to say that, but do they have a sensibility, a posture towards the world that is in many ways consistent with what we now call humanism? Sure enough. So let's move to Romero Beard and help us think through in terms of how this piece of art is, so, is, is distinct from, say, what some people may call sacred, right, as a kind of sort of material culture that then you're saying this kind of opens up possibility, right? Opens up the possibility, not for a particular end result, but the very process of, it's not discovery, but it's the process, yeah. right? that unfolds to you what is religious. So let's walk through this with Romero Beard and why were you so drawn to his collages in particular? And, and, yeah, and I was gonna say that, only the collage series. Collage, because it, it seems to me there are ways in which this effort to pull pieces and make them do a different type of work and, to, and what he highlights is the roughness, the tears, the unevenness. And, and for me, this kind of speaks to a profound sense of life as degraded and, and that's a good thing. Right, life as degraded, a deep awareness of messiness, of openness, of overlap. I see this within the art, and it provides a way of reimagining this. And, and, and so, my, my thinking about Bearden, Basquiat, Anjoubert, um, um, Matoire, right, the, the thinking about these folks is tied to a question by Arthur Danto that has just fascinated me for decades now. What is art? Right? He argues that, that pop art ends art history. Right? It, it raises profound questions concerning what constitutes art. If this Brillo box is art, what isn't art? What is art? Right? It raises that philosophical question. It just seemed to me that within the study of black religion, this was an important question to ask. What is black religion? What is black about black religion? What is religious about black religion? And so my, my looking at Basquiat, my looking at Bearden, my looking at Matoire, I'm kind of tied to this wrestling with this sort of question. In terms of what we've put together, the ways in which we've configured life, what in this constitutes the religious? Sure. So, and for, yeah. And, yeah, and for this, it's the, for me, it's the way in which this collage series speaks to overlap, it speaks to openness, it's, it, it speaks to presence together to pull from Camus. And so, and so for folk who are at home saying, well, look, but what about some of the material aspects of, say, of either you know, African-derived religions, whether it's divination, whether it's you know, this idea of being sort of captured in the spirit. What's interesting about the three artists you use, they all seem to in some ways go back to some notion of sacred, which is it's not constant, but it's shifting. And so I'm curious in terms of how then does that push us in terms of how we understand religion when, in fact, they're using the very same categories we use as intellectuals to define religion, but then in some ways you're saying it pushes beyond mm -hmm. Western conceptions of religion in terms of how we lock them in these categories. But there's more than one way to understand the sacred, right? Sure. That you can have this sense of awe and wonder and not tie it to anything that is theistically derived, yeah? But if you're trying to create a uh, sort of a theory that is about openness and challenging some of the presuppositions of these theistic claims, does it matter then that folk keep going back to terms that we traditionally then define within a very theistic way? In other words, should we think about 
I, I don't know, some other sets of categories to really dismantle the, the theistic hold that really didn't allow for this humanistic project, right? Like, like soul life, for example. Soul life might give us a possibility of moving beyond certain theistic <laughs> claims in terms of Du Bois that the sacred thing keeps us, even in terms of, as a symbol, we keep going back to the cross or going back to like the Torah, or going back maybe, right, to water, things that are defined with, with, with thick religions. Yeah, I'd say a couple of things that their turn to the sacred is your language. Well, you, you, no, no, you mentioned this in terms of um, Angel Hart or... or uh, Angel Berman, yes. But yeah, but for him, this, this turn to the sacred is secular. It, it is, sure enough, it is. We can text him and find out, but it's, for him, this but is... But it doesn't matter what the category. author thinks, if in fact the author is relying on categories that are pre-existing, that we have defined, oh. and they carry this hegemonic kind of tone to A them. couple of things, Brother Johnson, one, <laughs> yeah, um, there is the need to develop an alternate vocabulary and grammar, but I resist and will always resist the assumption that simply because theists have used these categories, they are owned by theists. No, you can't have all of these. That, that has been my argument within, and I spend a lot of time in humanist circles, right? And I, and I think there, there are lots of things that humanist circles do well, like the American Humanist Association. One thing they do not do well is the ritualization of life, in part because they have surrendered so much good stuff to theists, with the assumption being theists are passionate about this language, they own it. No, you don't get to keep all of this, right? That these categories, some of them still function, some of them still work. I, I think this has been my argument in large part from very early on, that the category for me, the category of God, no longer works, right? But some of these categories tied to the theology I was trained to do still have function, they still work, so I hold on to them. I'm arguing against the, the underlying assumption that theists have used them with such poetic <laughs> prowess that they get to claim them and no one else can use them, no. Well, and I don't believe the point, so let's look at Angel Bird because, I, and, I, and I do wanna go back to this idea in terms of how we can appropriate language because when we talk about, say, blackness, right, mm -hmm. it seems as if we use blackness in a very static way that signals back to the ways in which it locks us in to this dread, it locks us into the Negro problem. So whether it's Afro-pessimism, whether it's, as you mentioned here, in terms of the Middle Passage, right, and mm -hmm. thinking through that, even, and even these artists are then responding to anti-blackness in very critical ways, but it's going back to the ways in which the social structures have defined it. And so then how then do we get out of that life? So on the one hand, if but we can do it with religion, why aren't we doing it with race? But here's my point. You, you can't get out, right? I mean, I'm you can get out of religion, religious well, categories? You cannot get out of this dilemma, right? I made that argument with varieties. I made the argument with terror and triumph, and I hold on, it, hold on to it tenaciously here that we do not get out of this. That what we do is continuously say no to modes of injustice. No, we will not win. What does Du Bois say? 1962, and we disagree on this, yeah? But he argues 1962 before heading to Ghana. He writes to a friend and says, chin up, fight on, what? Knowing the Negro can't win, right? So uh, this is one of the things that I find deeply compelling about Albert Camus, and I read him in relationship to Richard Wright and Nella Larson, think quicksand, mm -hmm. and think Helga Crane at the end of quicksand, right? That we don't win this. Outcome-driven strategies have not been productive, that there is something of our humanity to the extent that category even makes sense in our no to injustice, 
but we don't win this. So getting outside of this restrictive notion of blackness, I, I don't know that we do but that. I think Du Bois' double consciousness gives us a hint in terms of striving towards something. It's not simply the dilemma of the two-ness, it's striving towards it. And also, what's the point of this art if we can't, you said it's about discovery. What are we discovering? Listen, that we're not black, listen, that we're listen, not listen, what, did I, what the, have I always said, right? And it's, it's laid out in terror and triumph and it moves forward, perpetual rebellion. This is consistent with Du Bois' striving, perpetual rebellion. We don't win this. And so this is one of the reasons I find Afro-pessimism useful. I, I think it's asking the right questions. And I think it's interrogating and calling us to task on some of our assumptions. This works for me. Sure. So let's talk about this piece here in terms of I'm, cut out, I, I'm a cut out life mm -hmm. in terms of how this then allows us for kind of discovery that sort of the openness that you're wanting us to kind of mm -hmm. think and, and imagine. Can you say more? Because I think it's a rather compelling piece. Can you set us up what this is, what we're looking at here? Well, let me tell you a bit about uh, Andrew Matoire in more general okay. terms, right? So Andrew Matoire understands himself as an Afrofuturist. But an Afrofuturist who's somewhat suspicious of notions of future, mm -hmm. right? And, and, and so within his work, what he's trying to call us to do, um, and, and many of these pieces are drawn from um, an exhibit I curated for him at University of Texas that was all about a wrestling with what it means to be human within the context of our current circumstances still yearning for something that is not these circumstances, right? What most folks will call future. And for him, you get some sense of this by a kind of awkward placement of bodies in time and space. That this awkward placement of black bodies in time and space raises certain questions concerning present, past, and future. And for him, this need to wrestle with the awkwardness of this placement and what it tells us in terms of past, present, and future kind of speaks to a sense of openness, of porousness, okay. of vulnerability. Sure. This is powerful. And it actually connects to a brilliant point you make uh, towards the end around social coding, this idea that social coding imposed upon the body, right, um, is not designed to entrap us, as you say. In some, some ways, we can use religion as a way of move, moving beyond the, social, the co social coding, potentially, right? Or at least the very process of interpreting social coding is what is... Is, is well, religion allows us, well, I mean, religion is our interrogation of that. Yes. But, but get us beyond it? No, that's you. Okay. It, it doesn't get us beyond this. It just helps. It's a mechanism for interrogating human experience. And it points out this openness that social regulations and social codes and social practices seek to close off. Right? But this, the book ends with this turn to Du Bois, Richard Wright, Nella Larson, and Camus. The idea, again, being we struggle against this effort to close things off, but we are, un we are unsuccessful. Sure, and, and you close with this idea, again, almost like an ethical turn. You return back to the psychosocial ethical, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, before we get there, and I want to open, up, open this up to the audience as well, I just want to go through two other pieces here I found very fascinating. In terms of, can you set up Yoko Ono for, for, the, uh, for the audience and then explain this piece here? Yeah. Yeah, um, so this is from the chapter on human waste. I don't know what kind of language I can use. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, this, this is the chapter that looks at how shit functions within the context of art and what this tells us about bodies as open, as porous, as penetrated. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I talk about Okoyono's work in relationship to the cover of a Rolling Stones album, a cover that was rejected by the label, 
that shows a well-worn and stained toilet, okay. right? And, and so for me, what I was trying to understand with this um, is again, a, another example of how bodies are open, how they're porous, right? And, what, and how this gets played out in terms of not only what goes in bodies, but what we make of those substances that come out of bodies, right? And I'm kind of drawn to theorists who argue that there are segments of our population, there are segments of our population, the marginalized, who for the context of this country have become shit. So what do we, how do we wrestle with this? Not necessarily resolve it, but highlight it, make it visible and wrestle with it. Sure. And, and would you say this type of wrestling I mean, could one argue that you know Du Bois and others and uh, Ida B. Wells are wrestling with the same thing in terms of the context of lynching, right? Wrestling with that image, with the smell, right? With that kind of living kind of memory. Sure, sure. <laughs> you you were look, looking for a longer answer to that. No, no, no but I, so so in other words, I I see the connection, and also I'm trying to I, I want to sort of clarify the terms. I think it's a really interesting intervention you're making in terms of how to use how to think about black religion as very central to this, not really theorizing, but this kind of a culturalist assemblage as you you mm -hmm. called it, in terms of helping us make the, make those connections for us. Yeah. And there are other ways in which the body is brutalized. So someone I found kind of deeply compelling is, is Ron Anthe, mm -hmm. right? And Ron Anthe is a performance artist who grows up in a Pentecostal environment, right? He's a, he's a child preacher, Pentecostal. And through performance art, rather brutal and bloody performance art, he's working through these, he's working through Pentecostal theology in a way that is deeply embodied. And for me, that is extremely compelling, right? What is really, that we often do this sort of work in a way that is, sanitized and safe, but here you have this performance artist who is wrestling with these the theological categories in a way that is disturbing, that is violent, that is messy, and something about that for me is just deeply compelling. Sure, no. And, and I think there are ways in which this plays out and take black theology. That black theology has done this work, it has explored and explained black misery, but in a way that is somewhat abstract and safe. And for my mind, in a way that often involves no body. So there are some, I, I'll take Kelly Brown Douglas, for example, who works against this, but it strikes me that black liberation theology and womanist theology in more general terms has worked on the black body in a way that disembodies it. And, and so the Christology, if you argue that black theology has been an extended Christology, this is a Jesus without a penis, right? So we wrestle with Jesus without full awareness of and sensitivity to Jesus's presence in the world. Jesus had a penis and the question becomes, a theological question becomes, what did Jesus do with this penis, right? Who was pleasured by it? And these are not questions that we typically ask within the context of black theological studies, which it seems to me for, for a, a, a mode of conversation that understands itself as being deeply connected to the church has done a disservice, right? That this conversation has not 
enlivened and produced a mature understanding of embodiment and, and pleasure and the erotic within the context of the churches that it says it's all about. Sure. And so does this then lead to this idea that you said, look, um, sort of the, the thing things and, and the naming things are in some ways prevent or, or, or lead to a certain kind of openness, but also this idea of, um, I don't know, the thickness of the, of the black church that you're trying to return to. Well, and also, that, uh, I, I want to argue that the proper posture for black religious studies in particular and, and religious studies in more ge in general terms, that the proper posture involves an embrace of discomfort. Sure, sure. But then that openness that you call, call for, which I think is really powerful. I'm not calling for it. I'm, I'm saying that it's there, that this is what it, that's what this hermeneutic okay. surface is. And does this openness then in any way erase black suffering or create a kind of bad faith? I mean, I know you try to account for that with the grotesque, but is there a way, is, how, do, how, how then do we not fall into the trap of, of our openness just to sit with the artwork that we don't potentially fall asleep Because this openness gaze. is fought, right? That we live within the context of a social world that works hella hard to close off this openness, that, that seeks boundaries, right? And so you mentioned lynchings, and it seems to me that on one level, this is a ritual of reference that involves a deep effort to close off, to constitute boundary. And yet the very institutions you've studied ha have always transgressed those very boundaries that were put upon them. I don't know that that's the case, right? So I, you know, and I'm not throwing shade at the black church, right? So, but if you think about the black church, there are ways in which it has done the issue of race well, right? So in terms of openness, it has, it has tried to maintain a kind of openness, a porousness with respect to race, but it has done an embarrassingly poor job with respect to issues of gender, sure, sure. class, and the list goes on. So I don't know that these institutions, I cannot say that with you, that these institutions have been about that business. But again, my argument is, this isn't a battle we win. And, but I'm also thinking in terms of at the lived experience of religion, I'm thinking of our colleague Tracy Hutz in terms of folks who say, I'm Yoruba Baptist, right? Or preachers who are also diviners, right? Or you know the, the AME preachers who are also hanging out with Marcus Garvey, and, you know, it's a different issue, right? See, Dr. Huck, see how we're trying to pull you in? See how you're trying to pull you in? <laughs> I didn't, I'm my That's help. a different issue. My, my argument isn't that, that there isn't messiness and overlap in terms but of But it's more than messiness, that, though. But, but this it, it is a different the, issue. Okay, how, how is it different? Because, because it speaks to the openness of, of the very lived experience. In other words, I think we read certain aspects of either of Conjure uh, or Black Church in a very sort of static way, assuming that the, 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 that what people articulate resembles how they behave, which is often not the case. Show me where I've done that. Well, by not naming those traditions as a part of being, that allow for the openness that you want to call for in the interplay, it seems as if you're, 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 you're denying that those traditions well, or those, but those possibilities. That's, that would be the case if I hadn't written Varieties or Terror and Triumph. But this but seems to the actually, I have, this, this seems to rebuke or at least no, challenge man, this is a ritual reference. This is the theoretical project. No, it, it doesn't do that at you all. You said it changes how the rituals are referenced. That in rituals of reference, if foreclosed or limited the, the ways in which we looked at the body, now you want to open it up. I'm not trying to open it up. I'm saying that this hermeneutic, when applied, demonstrates this openness that social codes, social mechanisms, and categories seek to close off. I'm not trying to win the day. I'm simply saying this is what this hermeneutic surface is. 
what you get is an effort to close that off. I'm curious and intrigued by the look of that effort. That's all. I'm, I'm interested in exploring and seeing the look of that effort to both maintain openness and to close off. And with the maintaining of openness, there, there, there's, there's no, there's no tell us, there's no, you're not looking for a result, you just want to examine. I'm, the openness is the win to the extent it remains. But no, remember for me, this is the rebellion is perpetual. This does not end. One must imagine Sisyphus happy. I, this, this understanding from Camus works for me. Why do I turn to art on one level? Because, because I, I agree with Camus that if we had all the answers, we would not eat, need art. Secondly, that art both affirms and denies that it speaks a word and at the very same time negates that assertion. I find that compelling. What a powerful way, I think, to end this part of the conversation. Let's give him a round of applause. And I want we'll to continue that later. Yeah, and I want to thank Dr. Penn for uh, the liveliness of the conversation. I've admired his work for over 25 years, and so I, I, I appreciate your honesty and depth. So now I want to open it up. You may type in questions on, uh, in the chat room and open it up to our uh, in-person audience. Oh, yes, sir, Professor Jacob Olapono. Okay, thank you. Hello, sir. Uh, hopefully we'll be, we'll be able to have more of this. Uh, we can only comment on your work we have read. This is not, this is new. It's just coming in. But I'd like to raise a couple of questions, uh, which would be in responses to some of the issues you also raised. I'm surprised to hear that uh, you say that black religion or black theology is under-theorized. Uh, what I'm hearing looks like a, an African proverbs who compares an old man with those ancient agbadas and clothes that are no longer available in the contemporary period, and the younger ones who are, you know, blowing the, you know, the, the more modern one, and the Africans who say that the younger one may have more, you know, clothes that look flamboyant and blue, but they are not as ancient as the old ones. You know what, what I'm trying to say is that Kuhn also theorized black theology in his own way and responded to questions and issues of the time to such an extent that his work now became even a model for South African black theology. So I think it's very important that we put things in context. Yes, a number of them fail to talk about gender. Uh, just as even today, they would accuse you know, some African scholars of not discussing sexuality. So things have changed. That is, the, that is the work of religion, ever responding to changing situation and, uh, and existential concerns that lead us to this enterprise in the first instance. So I would like to see that you know, in context. The second has to do with this notion of black church. I keep hearing about the limitation of the word black church, black church. It seems to me that if you take that church in a sociological term, as trollish as extended, which is a body of you know, a community of faith that 
believes in certain things, that practice certain things. So the Uma itself may be a church, you know, in the sociological context. Maybe that will help us to have a better understanding of the kinds of varieties of black religious experience that you're talking about. The third thing has to do with, quote unquote, as, a, as an African myself, the word black, quote unquote, I think we need to theorize it a little bit. So thank you very much. I mean, you have stimulated us to think about some of these issues that we have been trying to struggle with. So well, I'm really, really you know, appreciative of your contribution. Well, thank you for that. We still have to figure out a time to have coffee and we can chop this up some. <laughs> I, I, I think where I would disagree with you in terms of Cone is on this, that I, I think if you, look at, if you look at the first two books and then skip to God of the Oppressed, what you get is Cone doing methodological work, right? He's, he's providing a methodological map. Mm -hmm. I don't think he theorizes the categories, that I'm hard pressed to see within Cone, for example, a clear, a kind of clear and explicit theorizing of, of black religion. What is theory? Theory, so this is, this is the way I understand it. Method is how you handle the issue. Theory is how you wrap your mind around it. And Cone assumes that if you name black church, you have named black religion. I'm hard pressed to see in these volumes any attention to doing more than that. Methodologically, yes, he has, he has helped generations internationally figure out how to do black theology. But for me, that is not the same as saying he has theorized. In, in terms of the black church, my argument has been from the very beginning that there's an inconsistency between what black churches claim and what they do. And that I have simply tried to point that out, right? And to get folks who are committed to the black church as the central, central mechanism for uplift within black communities to hold the black church accountable for being more consistent, to having greater continuity between what it claims and what it actually does. Yes, Janet. Just to push one thing a little further, that maybe what Terence was trying to get at, or maybe it's just my own question, but um, to the degree that you name this openness, and I understand that for you, openness also means well, lack of closure, lack of expectation of closure, recognition that things are not going to be won, that we're not, it's not going to be all perfected and ideal, and it's actually staying with the real messy situation. To the degree that you're, you are theorizing that, and you are naming that, and that people somehow incorporate or understand or embody those principles, is there something liberatory about that? In other words, no, it's not gonna take us to this promised land where everything is 100% fixed and closed and perfect. But is there something is, is there something helpful or useful simply to stay situated in that place of being able to tolerate 
and work with that openness. That's, yeah. I mean, that's the kind of thing that I would want to press. I'm wondering whether that's what you, you, you would agree to something like that as well. And, and I'm not coming out of black re, re, religion, you know, I'm coming out of other sources, but I think it's friendly towards yeah, the yeah. things that you're saying. So there are certain categories that no longer function for me. So I don't talk in terms of hope. I don't talk in terms of future. I'm troubled by the category of liberation. What I will say is this effort on the part of folks, however they name their community, the effort on, these part, on this part of folks helps to keep real the persistence of possibility. I'm not quite certain how to name it beyond that. I'm uncomfortable trying to name it beyond that, but I think the effort to maintain openness, to say, say no to boundaries, keeps alive the persistence of possibility. And for me, if there is something that constitutes a win, that's it. And that's a positive. You're, you're not, you, you don't wanna use the word positive. <laughs> I, I don't know what I gain with it. <laughs> Okay. Right, because I also want to be, and again, one of, uh, one of the things I find so compelling about Camus is the, is the kind of humility of thought, right? The idea that our assertions have to be negated. This is one of the reasons he can't really get with the existentialist, right? He is not an existentialist, that there is a kind of certainty with the existentialist that troubles him, that our affirmations have to be negated. I find that deeply compelling, and I try to make use of that posture. So I, I which accounts for some of my discomfort with these categories. I'm, not, I'm still holding, holding, holding the mic here, so I don't know. I could press you, you further, but I... <laughs> We have a question over here to the right. Thank you. I hope this question is relevant. But <laughs> um, So my name is Aaliyah Collins. I actually heard you speak before. Uh, I went to Fisk University for undergrad, and I was a Mellon Fellow, and you spoke at our keynote address at Rice. Ah. So I do remember you from there. And then I also know Reverend Dr. Jason Curry. He was one of my mentors when I was in FIS, so. Uh, he talks about you a lot. So. I saw him recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I feel like this conversation is really timely. It's something I've also been thinking about. Um, so over the summer, so I study Pan-Africanism, and so over the summer, I heard a lot of scholars or activists talking about, so there was a Pan-African scholar who was a nationalist, another one was a socialist, um, but they both agreed on the fact that they were atheists. Um, and so they were kind of, um, went through all of these reasons of why like religion was bad, um, from like Islam and Christianity all the way to African traditional religion of like how this was kind of like um, an obstacle in terms of like black liberation. Um, and I think what both of them were missing is that they weren't thinking about like spirituality more broadly, kind of like where I feel like more of what you are getting to, but I'm thinking about like when it comes to building community when it comes to like organizing and building towards some kind of political agenda or just sort of like building community with people who are faith-based and who people are humanist or who believe in other different things, but also within like black community, like 
what does humanism, what can humaniz, humanism teach us in terms of like how to build community with people who are, who belong to a faith tradition, who don't belong to a container or institutionalized faith tradition, if that makes sense. Well, thank you for that. I, I think on one level, humanism at its best offers those who are not theistically inclined a soft place to land. And I think this is what humanism in general has not done well. It has not offered people a soft place to land. It has assumed that a belittling and a critique of theism was sufficient. But folks need a soft place to land. Life is hard and there are issues we encounter that produce trauma. How do you help folks understand and move through that? I think one of the things that is missing is real and genuine conversation between black theist and black humanist that we haven't learned to talk together. But one thing is for sure that developing connections that are robust and affirming is a better process than us going at this alone. But we've got to learn how to communicate together. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to do this, yeah? That much of my early work is really kind of confrontational. And I will admit that, right? It's confrontational, but in part, I'm trying to carve out a space. But now I'm trying to figure out how to communicate in a way that allows me to maintain the integrity of my system, but hear and recognize what is compelling about the other's system. So I'm, I'm working on a project with Brad Braxton, new president of Chicago Theological Seminary. It's a collection of conversations we had using email over the course of, of COVID. And it, it will come out uh, this coming summer. And, and what we're trying to do is model conversation that is rigorous, that is respectful, but that holds no punches, right? And I think this is one of the things that's missing. What can humanism offer? One, it offers a renewed sense that we are our best option, right? It privileges and it celebrates horizontal relationships. And it recognizes that there is something about human effort that is of fundamental importance here. It also provides a way to embrace failure. It provides a way of rethinking discomfort. For my mind, another value in humanism with respect to social justice movements is the way in which it decenters outcome-driven strategies and privileges process. I sense some of that in Black Lives Matter. Hmm. That process matters. Less outcome-driven strategies, right? And so for me, this is one of the distinctions. One, this is one of the differences between the civil rights movement and Black Lives Matter a preoccupation with process, a more complex agenda, but a recognition that failure is not the end. Failure is an opportunity. But first, we gotta learn how to talk together. That's a great response. Oh, please, Dean, please. Um, I'm, I'm struggling for an intelligent question. I really enjoyed the conversation a lot. I guess what um, I'm struggling for is a sense of what the ultimate goal is of your enterprise, you know, whether it's to, um, you know, dismantle the certainties and, um, 
you know, failure to deliver of, of the black church or whether the project is really to um, somehow drive to the center of, of human subjectivity uh, uh, outside religious categories that, um, and that therefore you're using any way, any technology, any technique to, to poke around at that. Um, I mean, it reminds me a little bit, I'm not, you know, I, we grew up in very different um, contexts, but I, I, an early book I read, which, you know, transformed the way people thought about things, and there was at least five people read it, <laughs> my mother and two others. Now, I'm joking about that. Uh, but it was an attempt to try and get at the heart of, mm -hmm. it was a debate back in European religion those days of what popular religion was and how you could interrogate it, you know, outside the kind of the... Um, you know, the beliefs and institutions and rituals and so on. And then, you know, one way of doing that for me was to, to try and look at many, many different kinds of sources. So, you, you know, it was um, uh, oral history projects, um, 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 you know, literature, art, um, um, you know, especially trying to get to rural popular religion, which, which had a a very different set of, you know, connections to the land and to the earth and to warding off demons and bad luck and uh, and so on and so on. Um, so the point of that, I think, was to try and get at what is what's going on here and and what you know what sources will will help. Mm -hmm. um, but the aim of it, I think, was relatively clear cut. You know, to try and get at the heart of this kind of you know, what was going on in these relatively humble people's lives, especially in rural environments, that clearly institutional churches were by, you know, had, had nothing much to do with it. So I guess, you know, to come back to the framing of the question, that, that, that's my question, really. Is the ultimate aim to really, you know, penetrate as far as one can to um, uh, human subjectivity around these you know, eternal kinds of questions or thoughts, or is it to, or is it both to, you know, to also poke around at the, at the way in which the black church constructs set up boundaries that make it difficult for you to do that work, or is it a bit of both, or is that even an intelligent way of thinking about it? Thank you. See, Brother Johnson keeps trying to pull me back to the church. <laughs> but uh, for me, the, my goal is rather simple, to enhance awareness and lucidity, right? to, to enhance our awareness of our circumstances. For me, that is it, to enhance our awareness of our circumstances. That's all I can do. So um, I guess what I'm struggling for is to, 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 to see... Um, does that relate to other, to any religious categories at all, or would you rather just be done with those and start from different kinds of principles to get at that? In other words, yeah. all of this religious stuff is simply a set of false, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a railway track with many off um, tracks, all of which go nowhere. And, and therefore, it, it's better to start from a different train station altogether. I think some of the vocabulary and grammar should remain. It still has utility. We hold on to that. There are other elements that don't. But the fundamental question is, 
What are we willing to give up in order to develop greater awareness of our circumstances? Right? What are we willing to give up in order to produce that? So again, some of what we've traditionally called religion, some of this, sure, it should remain. Other elements of it really need to go away. But again, I understand my contribution to this to really involve developing a mechanism that allows for a greater understanding of where we are in this process. What we're facing, what we are encountering. And I wonder if black death forces us, right, to make certain changes that I, I wonder if we're not always observing. But uh, what do you mean by black death? Oh, but you said you there's a question here, and we'll go back to this. Uh, our, our colleague, um, Professor Raymond Carr, who's a visiting scholar at HDS for this academic year, would like to welcome you and thank you for the question. It reads It seems to me that Dr. Penn is criticizing abstractness in black theology and hiding behind a kind of abstract modality of exploration at the same time. Does he acknowledge that Cone's black theology in its affirmation of sex uh, in the black spirituals and in other black music? understood as secular spirituals, represents a methodological response to black religion. I noticed, for instance, that he did not mention Cone's book, The Spirituals and the Blues, in his reference to methodology. Well, again, I will admit that what Cone offers us is really insightful conversation concerning method. But saying that doesn't mean that Cone has offered us something as substantive in terms of theory. Yeah. But again, my argument would be those first two books and then God of the Oppressed are the more robust treatments in terms of method. Spiritual in the Blues, he was responding to Gayward Wilmore and his brother Cecil Cohn, who are saying, you know, all you've done is given us this stuff. You've given us European theological categories and you're painting them black. What about? black cultural resource. So within, this, within that slim volume, he's toying with black cultural resources for the development of a black theology. This is methodological work. And I have acknowledged that several times now. Yes, uh, Phil. Uh, first of all, thank you so much for coming in this incredible discussion, Dr. Penn. And I was wondering if you could talk about the class you pioneered at Rice, Black Lives Matter and Religion, and you know how the students are receiving that and how they're having discussions with you. Yeah. Oh, see, I thought you were going to mention religion and hip-hop culture, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, so for me, um, my, uh, it has always been the case for me that at Rice we had an opportunity to rethink education, that we needed a very different relationship to the larger city of Houston that then was traditionally the case. That much of Rice's work within the larger city of Houston was premised on a missionary impulse. We have all of this wonderful stuff and now we're going to give you some of it. And for me, that was just wrong. That there is a wealth of know-how, of knowledge, of capacity within the larger Houston community that ought to be brought to bear on anything we call a rice education. That one of the unique elements of a rice education ought to be the ways in which students get to interact and be informed and influenced by this wonderful city. And, and so my students were wrestling with Black Lives Matter, what to make of this, right? how to think about this. 
And I had a couple of graduate students who were involved in the Houston dimension of that movement who are trying to make sense of their academic study and the demands of community, right? And this is, oh, folks have mentioned James Cone, and James Cone is wrestling with this, yeah? He thinks about dropping out of PhD training and being about the business and realize you can actually do both. And so I, I had to figure out a way to be useful to my undergraduates and my graduate students to give them a space in which to wrestle with these issues. But it had to be done differently. That for me, it was an opportunity to rethink pedagogy. Mm. That we needed to not only talk about Black Lives Matter, but I needed to be informed and influenced by this movement that rejects a kind of traditional hierarchy. So the classroom had to be different. And, and so I, I worked initially with two of my graduate students, one who is now at Virginia Union University and the other is at Colgate University, and, and said, okay, we're gonna map this together, but by the way, we are not in charge of this course. The students are in charge. Now, of course, I've gotta put something together, but that syllabus is negotiable that students will determine what matters here. They will determine what the most substantial elements of that course are. They will determine how things get graded. Like that, I, I won't, and you won't. We had to privilege conversation. I could not talk at the students. My graduate students could not talk at the students. We had to talk together. Right? And I had to kind of figure out how do we do this in a way in terms of physical space and conversation that is true to this alternate model. I also wanted, I thought it was important to move away from the traditional markers of success, so no long paper at the end, no test. What we did was this. Um, one of the centers I directed at that point, the Center for Engaged Research and Collaborative Learning, gifted the class every time it was taught $5,000. And the students were to come up with ways to bring what they were learning in the classroom to the larger public. And everything they programmed had to be available to everybody who wanted to participate. I was willing to make introductions for them if they wanted to bring in speakers, but that was it. I, they had to plan this thing out. Not the graduate students, not me, they had to do this. Whatever they decided to do with that money, however they decided to represent what they had learned during that semester, I had to be good with. And I tell you, it was hard. <laughs> I'm, this is my classroom, right? I had at least suddenly come to understand that I am responsible for this. I give them something, right? I'm opposed to the banking model, but I give them something. So I, it was hard to kind of reevaluate that, to release control and recognize that we are. We're learning this stuff together, learning it together. But it has, it's, it's gone well. And, and my commitment to the students has been, the course will be taught every year I teach for as long as it is necessary, right? For as long as the course is relevant, it will be taught. Well, that's a great response. I wonder, can you say more about, in terms of really wrestling with sort of, um, sort of categories that emerge in black religion writ large. And so in thinking about how this openness either aligns with it or, or you're pushing against it. So I'm thinking of like, you know, Cornel West says that, look, if we want to understand what genius looks like we, in terms of black life, we look to black preaching. 
look to jazz in part because of the internal mechanisms through which um, black folk defined it outside the normative white gaze. For Toni Morrison, it's about the assumption that, well, I am already at the center, right? And not trying to translate for people. So I'm curious in terms of what do categories say like double consciousness or even the talking book, for example, how, how do I think, in the, how do those categories actually in some ways speak to what you're saying and maybe push further because with the talking book in particular in terms of Alan Callahan, there's this notion in which the slave did not imagine the text as being whole at all. It, it, it was simply an encounter that was dialogical. One literally tried to hear and sit and listen and respond, and from that then, they began to digest, reframe, rethink, and sometimes just sit, right? Because maybe the answers weren't presented, but they were, in other words, they were using the Bible as a kind of like art, right, that they engage. How might the talking book, for example, or even double consciousness push this idea of openness? Because with these categories, we see how it's both rooted in history, right, but still giving, giving people the possibility of challenging these thick categories of, of blackness, right, which seem to always overshadow our, our ability to be open because structures keep us locked in this state of degradation. Yeah, I, I think there's something to be said, not only for Alan Callahan's take on this, but also Vincent Wimbush's more recent work. That, yeah, I, the, the interpretation of scripture on the part of our ancestors at its best might be understood as an effort to maintain openness. I have no problem with that, no problem whatsoever. In terms of Du Bois, double consciousness, that's you. I mean, I, I prefer the category of the, of the problem soul, right? This is the way I would frame it. And it seems to me that what you get with Du Bois, if, if you look at souls of black folk and you look at Dusk of Dawn, if you look at souls of white folk, right? If you look at these materials, you get, you get a sense of incompleteness. You get a sense of project as unfinished. Sure. And I tie into that what you get with the coming of John. There's an incompleteness there that sure, there is sure. a terror and a, there, is, there is a tragedy that is already and always that I find compelling. And that tragedy that is already and always that Du Bois is helping us to understand is the social world's effort to close off openness. Sure, sure. Yeah, I agree. And the genius, right, of the slave to piece together these different fragments of life, to, to make sense of these categories, but also to, in some ways, I think, implicitly lend themselves to this openness. Because again, I don't think double consciousness is about ending at one place. You're constantly striving. It's, it's that ongoing struggle that you talk about in terms of the struggle for freedom. Yeah, but that's the category that animates your work. It's, it's, it's not me so much, right? That I'd move in a different direction with Du Bois. But I get what you're saying. I think on some level we're here. <laughs> uh, any other questions from the audience? Oh, oh sorry. Um, yes, it looks like we have um, a colleague, Tracy Robertson Carter. Dr. Penn, thank you uh, for this timely conversation. I look forward to reading your book. Um, Let's see, what's the question? Is this idea, uh, I'm an enthusiastic and social justice activist who works in and supports the arts as a catalyst for social change. I'm drawn to your statement, quote, the art both affirms and denies that it speaks uh, to the world and at the very same time negates that assumption. Contemporary artists like uh, Kahende Wiley, Wangayechi Mutu, um, and others speak to this. Uh, could you say, could, could you please share other contemporary artists that you follow and why? I guess as it relates to how art both affirms yeah. and denies. 
So more recently, I've been spending time in conversation with Houston-based artists. Um, and, and so one that I've been in conversation with is Jamal Cyrus. And Jamal Cyrus, one of the things I find fascinating about him is the way in which he uses place to trouble categories. So there's an installation that involves remnants of a jazz club that used to be in Houston, situated in relationship to, but over against, a church-based reality, right? Church pews with the hymnals. And for him, this is a way of, of, of working to bring into the orbit of conversation what he understands as these diametrically opposed orientations. And I find that compelling. There's another, Lanicia Tensley, um, Houston-based, but splits her time between Richmond and Houston, who helps us to kind of reimagine civil rights moments. Right? And rather than pulling out kind of grand developments, she's more preoccupied with everyday manifestations of resistance. Right? What, is the, what is the nature of rebellion lodged within play? I think that's fabulous. That's amazing. Any other questions before we close? Great. Well, let's give Dr. Penn another round of applause. Thank you all. And again, I'd like to thank you again for coming out. Uh, we're very thankful for Dr. Penn, but also to the um, Office of Academic Affairs and to our co IT colleagues for helping pull this off. Have a good night, everyone. Sponsor, Professor Terrence L. Johnson. Copyright 2022, the President and Fellows of Harvard College.